This is Cade Massey, practice professor here at the Wharton School and co-host of Wharton Moneyball. Today, we're talking to Seth Walder. Seth is a writer at ESPN. He's kind of the translator between their analytics group and the world at large. This conversation comes right on the heels of the Super Bowl. And we talk a little bit about the Super Bowl, but we spend a lot of time talking about evaluating quarterbacks, uh, most valuable players across the NFL, decomposing wide receiver performance. All of this is some way of thinking about how good is that person? How much credit do they deserve for what we're seeing on the field? It's a fun challenge to take up. It's a fun conversation with Seth. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Warden Moneyball. Ed Massey hosting today with the whole crew. Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics. Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics. Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. We are joined by Seth Walder. Seth is a longtime writer at ESPN, longtime friend of the show. We have him on frequently. I, I right or wrong, Seth, I think of you as kind of the voice of the analytics group at ESPN. You're the translator almost to some extent. I know you do some analytics and and some of those guys communicate, but you're kind of the translator for the analytics group at ESPN, at least in my eyes. Is that fair? That's fair. No, I think that, I think that's fair. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes people say, but this is radio. So voice works, you know, (laughs) that, a translator is an important role. I think it's an underappreciated role and an, an increasingly common role to have a bridge between a, a technical group and people who use the information. Um, and you've been doing a great job of it for a long time. Hey, we want to check in with you. Um, one, on the Super Bowl, of course, we're only 48 hours after the game. How, how are, how's it sitting with you? What was your experience? Did you have a rooting interest in that game? It was a, it was a, it was a good game. Uh, I I didn't have like a real rooting interest. I think I picked the Eagles. I felt really strongly about the Eagles going into the playoffs. I felt really good about them in the divisional round and the conference championship. And then I wasn't so sure about the Chiefs here. I just really Seth, enjoyed- real quickly, real quickly. What was the basis for your confidence in the Eagles? What was it that you were seeing in the numbers or in the film when you watched them that had you so confident? They're just such a complete team, and I think that's the reason why I liked watching them. They're Pass rush was unbelievable. And I think we know that because of the sacks, but their advanced numbers were that way too. Their corners were incredible. James Bradbury, I mean, I hate to see his season end the way it did. He put up some just incredible numbers as a corner this season. In my view, uh, the best cornerback in the league this year. And I think certainly he and Slay were the best two corners. Uh, I like across the board of the defense, like it's really hard to distribute credit there. Like TJ Edwards, the linebacker, was really good this season. Uh, Brandon Graham was a rotational pass rusher for them and he, his numbers were monstrous. I mean, his pass rush win rate would have ranked third at edge if he had like qualified, he was only a part-time player. So he didn't, he didn't, but like, that's the guy that was coming off the bench for you. And that's, that's just the defense. Then they're offensively. They were, they were so good. They had a good offensive line. AJ Brown and Devontae Smith were incredible. And Jalen Hurts was in a good situation and maximized it. So I just felt like, one to 53, that team was so awesome. Mm-hmm. So there you are. You were confident. You weren't sure about the Chiefs. And then the game unfolds. And you're really thinking your money at halftime. You're thinking, I, I saw this so clearly. I'm such a good analyst. And then what happened? Yeah. And then and then what happened is uh, you go pick against Patrick Mahomes. And Patrick Mahomes shows you <laughs> what to okay, do. Here, hey, I are, we giving, 
are we giving him too much credit? I mean, we, we all think Mahomes is amazing, but he is quarterbacking for a guy who seems to be pretty good at scheming up offenses. Among also, other people. I don't know. Worth, worth mentioning, I think, and maybe Seth, I'd like your, your perspective on this, the role that how awful the field was and how it got progressively worse as the game went on. You know, I mean, again, we were expecting pass rushes on both sides of the ball and those never materialized. And I can't decide how much of that was just offensive lines being awesome. And there are two great offensive lines, but you, you could, it was clear the athletes weren't getting much traction and that's got to affect a pass rush substantially. I think, I think somewhat, I, I mean, like, I, I think that somewhat that definitely was a factor. It's kind of like a snow game where like offense is sneakily productive in, in snow. Uh, and so I think, I think to your point, yeah, I think that's right. But I think Patrick Mahomes is amazing. You you're saying give him too much credit. They traded away Tyreek Hill and he was, and he was still, still the same guy. So Seth, to be fair, I, I think he's amazing and fantastic, but I do stand by, we almost always give quarterbacks too much credit. And so without even knowing the quarterback, I, I believe that we give them too much credit. And we give them too much blame when they lose. Um, now, what, an important exception might be Brady and Belichick. I don't know. We might have learned over time that Brady deserved even more of that than than we were giving him real time, given how much we thought of Belichick. But that's we're getting into the weeds. Seth, give us a couple of other observations on the Super Bowl, and then let's back up and talk about the season. Okay, you mentioned the the pass rush, right? And so certainly part of us, part of it is is what you said, the field. But to me, going into that game everybody's talking about the Eagles pass rush and this team is not just the sacks. They were number one in pass rush win rate. Like they were winning snap to snap. Uh, No question. Elite, elite group, but they didn't sack Patrick Mahomes once. And I think it's a really important reminder that when trying to forecast sacks, which is something that I've spent an oddly uh, quite a lot of time focusing on, uh, I I find, I find the, the statistic really kind of interesting the offense and the quarterback and the situation all play really important roles in addition to the pass rushers themselves. And there is, we had the chiefs offensive line as the best pass blocking offensive line in the league. And Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback at sack avoidance. I mean, he's incredible. Just 11% of pressures. So this is pressures against him were converted into sacks this season. That's something he's been good at his entire career and that is a key a key factor. And also the Eagles were not, they were up by 10 uh, at halftime, but you didn't have that late situation where the Eagles were ahead, which is where the offenses get desperate. That's when sacks happen. And that happened in so many Eagles games this year, but not the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. How good are we at parsing credit between an offensive line and a quarterback? The fact that you were talking about how good Mahomes is, but then you said the Chiefs were the number one. It's like, now I think you're probably biased in your beliefs about the Chiefs' offensive line because Mahomes is so good at individually avoiding it. I would, or, or, or have we gotten good at? I, was, I would like to think that our win rates are a pretty good measure way to separate those two things. So in okay. the, in the, with the win rates, we're just measuring how often the offensive line is sustaining its block at two and a half seconds. And so, to me, I think that. You you look at the win rates and sack rates, and there's a correlation, but it's there can be di- like serious divergences there. And we have we have quarterbacks who take lots of sacks behind good offensive lines, and vice versa, and or at least according to the win rates. And so I do think that in this case, we are looking at both both being true: Mahomes being good at avoiding sacks and the offensive line. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not always that case. 
Well, speaking of quarterbacks, you've also got this piece up recently about MVP voting. And you're taking advantage of, you're actually lauding the fact that they're, they're, people are going deeper now, but you did your own analysis to come up with your own ballot. And you went 100, I think you went 100 players deep. Is that right? So tell us about this analysis you did. I, I did. I basically said, I, I think I might have pitched this even before they expanded the idea, expanded the, the ballot to five players. But when they did, I thought, you know, five is five is fun. That's good. You might sneak in a, a non-quarterback. So that's that's cool. But like you kind of want to go further. And I think the way the like Slack conversation with my editors went, I was like, yeah, five is good. You know, what about 10, 10, 10, 25? Maybe we go 50. All right. Actually, yeah. you know, if we're gonna go 50, we might as well just do the whole let's go hundred. Let's just do it. Yeah. And uh yeah. they 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 relented and let me. Um I think what's really fun about and interesting is the way you try and reconcile positional value here. And there's no, there's no magic formula for this. Uh, And, and that's the question to me. That's why I I find the down ballot stuff. So interesting quarterbacks are the highest leverage. So by almost definition, the best quarterback is the most valuable player in the league. Uh What about the, what about the ninth best quarterback against the first best wide receiver and and those kinds of questions. And so, I'm relying on all sorts of metrics here, but also, you know, some some feel and some intuition about positional value. And, and I talked to people in the league uh, and showed them my list and they said, you're crazy for this one. And this guy's too low. And right. you know, I thought that was like to me, that sort of crowdsourcing was was useful data points. And so I've got this insane list of one one to 100, which I'm like pretty, pretty happy about, I think. Does, how does TJ Hawkinson feel about your list? He was, you know, what's hilarious is that, so he snuck on at the last minute. I just might've been the night before I I decided to sub him in, put him at number 100. (laughs) I'm, I'm sorry to Frankie Louvu, Panthers linebacker. You were the guy that got bumped at the last second. Um, (laughs) You know, it's hilarious is that I think someone, I, I, uh, I saw some tweets. People were upset that Hawkinson had made the list, which I think surprised, surprised me. Mm-hmm. Um, but also my, I was, I was thinking about it. It's like, well, at least they read to a hundred, you know? That's right. Exactly. So what, what did you learn in the process, especially you, you, you build your list and then you talk, and you talk to people and you revise your list. Who are you putting a stake in the ground on that you think is most controversial or you might think is most insightful? So Bradbury, who I already mentioned, yeah, he's there at 19 and I had him higher and people in the league convinced me that that was a little bit much. Uh, to me, his numbers uh, as from the NFL Next Gen stats and their their nearest defender numbers, so uh, they come with all sorts of caveats. But he was the first best player in every every metric, and and to me, the most basic, useful corner metric is yards allowed per coverage snap because we have to account for non targets, right? We not right. not being targeted is a good thing. And and he's he's first basically every way you look at it. And so I think he was certainly a stake in the ground guy where I just felt like being an incredible corner, not allowing opponents to throw on you, that is a super valuable spot. If I felt more confident in our ability to evaluate corners, he would be higher. I'm sort of allowing some buffer for uncertainty. Yeah, and I mean, I guess I'm kind of like to the extent that you feel uncertain about that positional position or, or the pushback that you've gotten on that particular position. 
uh, for him? Is it kind of disagreement that he actually is the best of the cornerbacks or is it disagreement that no cornerback, no matter how good, should be as high as 19? And does it get kind of more back to, again, sort of how we weight positions or how we weight players within a position? The former. I think that a corner is a very valuable position, could easily be the bet, the most valuable defender. And I think people in the league would say that too. It's, I think that it's more about was Bradbury the best? And, and at least to me, in my mind, the way I think about these things is do I have more uncertainty about our ability to evaluate him? So, no, that's a good, but I think, yeah, you could absolutely be the most valuable defender as a corner. Seth, one last topic for you. And this is, this is a big one we could spend the next six months talking about, but just on the way out, let's get your thoughts because we're moving into NFL draft season. And of course, fascinating on lots of fronts, but quarterbacks are always topic number one. And this year, definitely topic number one. And um, we've seen here Jalen Hurts is doing what Jalen Hurts has done. And it strikes me that he is the second prominent quarterback in the last recent past who's shown the ability to really kind of outperform in the NFL what he was doing at college, despite a generation or more of wisdom that said that doesn't happen. So Josh Allen is a known example, a counter example to that and kind of breaking the model we had. And then here comes Jalen Hurts and there's another one. And it, it just raises for me the question of have, do we, are we doing something different with quarterback development these days? Or are these guys true exceptions? Are we developing quarterbacks in a way? And of course it's relevant as we go into the draft, because if, if it's the case that we can now develop guys and better than we used to, then they're going to start drafting quarterbacks from college who didn't show, you know, didn't produce, but has the skills, the talent. And it's, it's, it's risky in a way it's, it's, you know, guys who fall in love with an arm, guys who fall in love with a body and, but maybe that's okay. Now, maybe it's more okay than it used to be because we're all of a sudden better at developing QBs. Are Hertz and Allen demonstrative of a new and better process or are they individually exceptions? What a good question that I have no idea the answer to. Oh man, I'm, it's interesting. You know, in both cases, I'm thinking about, I, I, I want to say this in the right way because I don't want to take away credit because, but like they're both put in really good situations. Goes back mm-hmm. to Kate's point, right? About like quarterbacks not being everything, but you talk about guys who had, who were put in situations where they had good pass protection and good receivers and, mm-hmm. And that that helps, but like that, I'm trying to say that just you can drop anyone into this Eagles team and that they're going to play like Jalen Hurts did because that's definitely not true. Mm-hmm. The question is: Is are we better at quarterback development? I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to give. I don't want to say something because I think it's a good question, and I don't. I don't want to. I don't know. That might be true. <laughs> what do you now? I mean, the- question: What do you think, Cade? I do think we're getting better. Um, I think we're 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 obviously analytically smarter, technically smarter, biomechanically smarter. Um, these guys, I don't I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not so much mechanical development as it is schematically deploying them better. There's something about I think that might have have ticked up. Now I could be completely full of it. But if I had to I, hypothesize, I'd say. No, I was just wondering, Seth, if you thought the following analysis very simple could do. Let's imagine we assume that the ratings, you know, whether it's Kuiper 
or uh, I forget the other guy that does it with the, uh, who's Todd the other McShay. guy? Yeah. Todd who's McShay. the other person? Todd McShay. McShay. Let's imagine we took their rankings or ratings as something that's fairly constant over time. And then we looked at the performance as a function of draft rankings. And if we saw a trajectory that was higher, like 92s today do better in years one, two, and three on a whole set of metrics than previous 92s, it could be that there's a drift in the rankings or those rankings could be constant. And given the same input, people are performing better. Would that analysis, I mean, would it make it on the air at ESPN? How do you think about that? My gut says you're right. But I don't I don't know. And then what do you think about like a guy who's like a 78? Is do we think that it's like everywhere across the board? Because like yeah, Josh Allen is very highly rated. Yeah. And it hurts and hurts and hurts less so. And and less so it's a, it's it's a related question, but it's not the same question. But Eric, I can speak to it a little bit. You could ask the more general question of just how predictive is draft order of NFL career performance? And is that relationship strengthening over time so just that's another example, nice way to put it i was going to condition on score by some by some judge but i'm happy with uh rank position as well yeah but just take theory is true it, it's also possible that if we're better at developing that could lessen the weaken the relationship with that's draft. right yeah because you've got to be I, think it's different. I agree i think it's different from the development question but i i can tell you that over a long period of time i haven't run this analysis in a while but that relation, just call it a correlation of some kind between draft order and career performance, it was flat for 30 years or just barely moved for 30 years. Like the advent of the computer, all the data, all the attention the media gives didn't make any difference in the predictive quality of the draft for a player's long-term performance. It's just kind of striking. striking. I think it just speaks to the difficulty of the enterprise. It's irreducible uncertainty. We think we can figure these things out with perfection. And there's just a certain degree of uncertainty that's irreducible. Um, all right, Seth, we're going to have to let you go, man. Uh, fun to talk to you. It sounds like we're going to see you in Boston in a few weeks at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference for the first time in a few years. Glad about that. We'll look for you. But thank you for making time for us here this afternoon. Thank you, guys. Looking forward to seeing you. All right, guys. That's been another Wharton Moneyball here on SiriusXM. Thank you guys for listening. Special thanks to Matty Dats, the boss man, and Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, for the whole crew here, enjoy your sports.